I'm Carrie Bickmore. Welcome to Brains Trust. In this podcast, we will enlist the country's most interesting, funny and often complex people to help us reflect and understand our lives a little better. They aren't experts necessarily, but they all have curious minds, big brains and love a laugh. This Brains Trust of well-known Australians has been gathered together by journalist and producer Chris Walker. Hi, Carrie. Who are we here from, Chris? I've spoken to people that I admire, people that I care about and people that I work with. I'm Chris Brown. I'm a, uh, a veterinarian. My name's Adam Briggs. I'm a Yoda Yoda man. I'm Ryan Chang. I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh, my name's Annabelle Crabb. I'm Willie Dali. Hello, I'm Kitty Flanagan. My name's Hamish Blake. I am a first-year apprentice homeschool teacher. Each episode will move between these awesome guests, like an eavesdrop on the ultimate conversation. So before we bury 2020 deep in our memory, we're going to walk through it all again and see how it changed us and what we learnt along the way. Let's continue Season 1 of Brains Trust. Media is everywhere, on our TVs, our newspapers and in our pockets. It has an incredible impact on what we do, what we buy and what we think. In 2020, we were forced to retreat into our homes and become more reliant on our devices than ever before. We now live in a world where nearly 4 billion people are on social media and our lives are constantly being curated by forces that crave our precious attention. One possible step forward this year was Twitter flagging misinformation being spread on its platform, most notably by an obstinate Donald Trump. That's where Dr Chris Brown starts this episode. They had to do something. I mean, it's it's got to the point where you see Trump being interviewed by CNN or NBC, and he's and he's just angry, and and he's angry because this isn't news the way he wants to do news. He wants to be able to to say something and and not have it questioned, and 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 when he uses Twitter as his main news dissemination platform, he's not used to people talking back or asking him questions about it. He just wants to make a statement and and then and let it echo around for a while. That's not how news works. You've got to be accountable and you've got to be able to uh, to actually stand by statements. So, yes, yeah, social media needed to be reined in where it, it, it can't just be a chance to stand on top of a, a, a mountain, throw shit into a valley and, and wait for the sound of it echoing around. You, 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 sometimes the, very the, strange, the very strange thing to do. It, <laughs> it kind of feels like that, that's what Twitter is sometimes, though. Isn't it? It's quite a good analogy for Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And then the number of retweets is the number of echoes that the, the shit makes once it, it lands in in the village below. Um, I feel like our shit analogy may break soon. <laughs> so it, it's um, yeah. It, there has there has to be do- something done. To do that, because because otherwise, it just becomes a, a, a screaming match. You, you've got to you've got to draw the line somewhere, and I, I think they've probably they've probably taken too long to, to do it. Do you think you're addicted to your phone? By the definition of it, yeah, yeah. I I, I just if I have a spare moment, this probably says a lot about me though. I, I, I don't like to to be idle. Uh, I, I always have to be doing something, and so if there's a quiet moment, I'll look at my phone and and. Um, and it'll be either to check news or it'll be to look at photos from from your house. Um, 
and just feel like feel like my interior decor is doing better than yours because no, I mean, no, no question it is. <laughs> and I, I have a cat that that urinates around the house and scratches the furniture. You, you... Our family just has a father figure that does that. <laughs> like all parents, Hamish Blake is looking for any advice that he can use when his kids grow into the social media world. What's your policy on phones for kids? Like what? I haven't faced this yet, but I think about it a lot. Well, so with Ollie, who's 13, this year was his first year with the phone and and interestingly, it became more significant this year than ever before because it was his way of interacting along with Fortnite um, with his friends because he wasn't seeing them socially for for COVID reasons. So there was some latitude that we needed to give him. But there were times when I was – it genuinely felt like we were giving him crack. Mm. Mm. He was so obviously addicted to – the, particularly Fortnite, but, and, you know, it, it would be hypocritical to be critical of him because... And then we're the same. Yeah, and it's 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 a real problem. Like, it it becomes, you know, you, if your hand starts twitching if you don't feel your phone in your pocket. Oh, or you just constantly think it's, it's buzzing you when it's not. I, I agree. It's like, it's something that I'm keen to be better at and solve and rectify a bit. Like I go through this from like, right, I'm deleting Instagram. Like I managed to get off Twitter a long time ago and it, I'm in a great space. I never signed up for Facebook back in the day, so I managed to dodge that bullet. Got off Twitter a, quite a while ago. Well, very rarely look at it like just don't have that pull. But Instagram is probably the place where I'm, I'm going to, you know, get your vibe of what's happening in the zeitgeist. And so I go through stages where I delete Instagram for a few days and, it's the only way to do it. Like you can put the app on the back page or whatever, but your fingers just learn how to get to it and it doesn't They're matter. clever, aren't they? They're <laughs> pretty good fingers. So, yeah, I guess to a stage where I delete it for a few days and I and I uh, like that. But that's the thing. I just go, I, how am I going to stand there and go, come on, mate, there's more to life than your phone. When I know what, I am sitting here watching a, an eight-minute video of a – poly resin desk being made in time lapse like I'm like this is no point for me to be doing that but I'm just watching some like some liquid rubber be poured on some wood to make a lovely desk <laughs> and so I was like I don't know how I don't like I don't know how I'm gonna honestly look at my kids in the eye and go guys get off the phone real the real life's happening out there especially when I'm sitting in my in my like nook here at home where I am now and I'm doing that shit and I can hear my beautiful young children like playing on the couch outside and I go what are you doing like what are you, what are you doing you, yeah, what are you doing you how are you okay with this choice Ronnie Chang also found himself dealing with phone addiction in 2020 one of the things that happened during the pandemic was I had to delete Twitter from my phone and it was the best thing I ever did at the peak of the pandemic because on Twitter, it seemed like every five seconds we were kind of switching from everything is terrible, we're all going to die, into five seconds later, it would be, oh, yeah, it's fine. We figure it out. We'll be okay. We just have to wash our hands. And then the next five seconds would be, oh, it's over. We're, there's no coming back from this. It's, the virus is evolving. Um, <laughs> and so this roller coaster was like, man, this isn't helping. And I was like, you know what? If I got to go, I'm, if I'm going to die, I'm just going to die. I'm not going to die. <laughs> I'm not going to die a slave to this Twitter timeline. Just kill me now. And I just deleted it and it was the best. It seems that social media has created a, a place where there's no shared reality for people, particularly in America maybe, where one set gets their news from Alex Jones, one set gets their news from CNN, and those two things never 
really, really meet in any significant way. So mm. everyone's just yelling at each other from different perspectives. And I, and it feels a little bit like there's a bit of a reckoning happening with social media. Like it's only yes. been around for 15 years. Yeah. We didn't know what it was when 9-11 happened. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think we're only starting now to understand the ill effects of it. I think our generation has kind of uh, grown up with it. And so we're able to recognize it a little bit better as opposed to the older generation. But do you think we're kidding ourselves a little bit when we think that we can recognize it? Like we have this, on one side, there's a supercomputer telling us what to think and how to think and what to buy. And then there's our semi-evolved ape brain sitting there going, like, you know, okay, I'll buy the steak knives. It just feels like it's not a fair fight. Do you think we are wise to it? Yeah, I think that um, we're definitely on the losing end and it's bad, uh, but I think we are getting better at it slowly, very slowly. I think I can see improvements already in um, uh, myself, how I relate to it, uh, and not taking the bait so much on social media, understanding the, the, the downsides of it. I have a bit about this, about how we're still developing the antibodies to deal with the uh, social media and the internet in 2020. And that's exactly what it is. We don't have full immunity, but we slowly, <laughs> we're slowly like figuring out, like we can recognize it. Like, oh, this is a troll. Oh, this thing, arguing this doesn't help. Oh, these people have been consumed by it. And yeah, sometimes we also get consumed by it, but I, I think there's a little bit more recognition. Responding just isn't worth it. And and, and that's, a easy, that's easier said than done because our brains have evolved to want to engage in that kind of, um, uh, kind of mud fight. But mm. really step, taking a step back and really mastering your emotions on it and really being able to ignore stuff, uh, I think it's, that's something that I really have developed over the pandemic to ignore, really be able to withstand the noise. Do you think everybody's entitled to their opinion? We, we seem to hold that axiom very dear that everyone's entitled to their opinion no, I don't. I don't think so. I think. I think that phrase is just a platitude that people say to make everyone feel good. I think there's a lot of people who are unqualified and shouldn't have an opinion. I think the social media has fooled a lot of people into thinking that their opinions are not only correct, they are they are relevant, but it's it's not. And I think proof of the pudding is that Twitter has its own alternate reality, right, to how the real the world is actually working. Like the world kind of still keeps turning, and so. What all this stuff on Twitter is just noise. So, like, if all these people on Twitter had the answer, why isn't that translating to real world results? You know, if everyone you're arguing about has a valid opinion, why aren't they running something successfully? You know, in, into whatever it is government or business or, or you know, because there's a lot of people who are unqualified. Yeah. So not everyone's opinion is um, correct. But there's a big difference between unqualified opinion and straight-up racism, something Adam Briggs unfortunately faces on a daily basis. You once showed me the social media posts that you wake up to every morning, the racist remarks that you get every morning. Do you still get them? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say what that. I'm not going to say what they said, but they're incredibly full-on. Do you still delete them? Yeah, because like I, 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 I'm actually come up with a pretty good um, analogy for this. I used to put them on blast, you know, a few years ago. I'd pin the post or whatever or screenshot it, put it up. Mostly because, like, a lot of my white friends didn't believe it was happening. Mm. 
Like they were like, nah, people aren't like that. Like, are you for real? Like, people seek you out. And like, you know, like, bless them. Like, you know, my, <laughs> my mates are like sweethearts, you know? Mm. And so, like, I'd start putting them on. Be like, look at that one. There's one. There's another. They were like, holy shit. Like, this is like the very start of my career, right? And then, like, as I got older and moved forward in my career and done more things and reached more people, I noticed more kids coming through. Like, especially after I did, like, children came back, mm. more kids coming through. So, like, I stopped doing it because I didn't want to expose them to that when they're coming through to my to that level, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To that level, level of hate or... Yeah, like, you know, it's about, you know, my duty of care for my fans. So I just, mm. I just hide it, block, you know, delete. Why don't you just get rid of social media? Because it's a convention of me making money. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a convention of the job. Like, you need it. Yeah. You have to have it. Like, I'd rather not use it. I'd rather not have it anymore. I'd rather my management take it over. But it doesn't really work like that. So, like, you know, the the analogy that I explained it to um, a mate of mine the other day was um, I said, like, if I'm in my kitchen and I break a glass, no big deal, right? I know where all the pieces are. I know there's a broken glass down here. I just got to clean it up. And I can just do that in my own time if I'm living by myself. But as soon as that glass breaks and one of my nieces and nephews walk in with no shoes on, then I've got to, I've got to like be a hold, like tell them, hold up, wait, stop there, let me sort this out before you cut your feet. You get me? Mm. I was mm. like, that's my duty of care to my fans, man. Like they don't need to come in and, and be exposed to this racism, especially when they're just coming in like because they like my kid's book or they want to ask a question or something like that. You know what I mean? Like You deleting the remarks. What has that done to your psyche? Not much. It, I think it like the damage was done when I was a kid growing up in Shepparton. It just reinforced a lot of negative views or reservations that I held for myself. Like I was like growing up, um, I was always really apprehensive about meeting new people, especially new white people, because more often than not, I expect them to be racist. But it's like it's always someone who's like, oh, you got to meet my mate. He's the funniest bloke and it's always the funny guy. It's like, okay, he's working through his his um, Kevin Bloody Wilson routine. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> he, he's like, all right, all right, he's on the, he's on the gender, okay? Yeah, he, does, he doesn't understand gender. Okay, oh, now, you know, women, women are a big problem for this bloke as well. Uh, religion, okay. Oh, politics, here we go. Here comes oh, sport, yep. We're, we're, we're treading into – it feels like I'm a commentator and he's bending around the corner and he's going to be into the race straight any minute now. <laughs> <laughs> that's where he gets all his good work done. Yeah, that's where he's in there, like bang, 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 bang. But, like, the comments were nothing that I'd never heard before. It honestly mm-hmm. was just like cleaning house for me. Like, my manager at the time, he was, like, he was exhausted. He was like, Jesus Christ. And and our label manager, when we put up the video for um, January 26th, he was like emotionally exhausted as well from the amount of um, racism that comes along with it. But I think because like, you know, we're kind of weathered, you know, seasoned in it. 
It wasn't, mm. you know, there's, there's nothing that, honestly, like in the last 10 years, I've never read anything that I've been, that I've gone, oh, gee, is that a new one? Mm. So there's plenty wrong with social media. But Chris asks Annabelle Crabb, who uses Twitter regularly, to defend the good things about it. My position is that you can't be on Twitter and be part of proper public discourse. Tell me I'm wrong. Well, you're wrong. Because you love Twitter. Well, I don't necessarily love Twitter um, and I, I'm super conscious of its um, limitations. But I stay on there because I enjoy the ability that I have to get recommendations and links from people in, you know, quick time that would take me hours to find if I was trawling around, you know, um, reading through 20 newspapers a day. And I think that it's worth it for that reason. I think the limitations of Twitter are that it is um, by no means a representative chunk of the Australian um, population that uses it and a significant proportion of the people that are yelling on it are either not real people or they're elevating the tone and volume of their contributions in order to provoke people, in order to get more followers. I mean, you know, like it's a pretty weird sort of enterprise, but I don't think it's entirely without use. I find it more than anything, Twitter is a really um, fascinating writing challenge. I mean, it's almost like, you know, the great headline writers of, of old in newspapers, mm. they've faced exactly the same challenge. How do you use, you know, even in that case, um, a smaller number of words and characters to evoke a situation in such a way as to invite people to read more. And that is, I mean, I may be just a complete fool, but I still find that a really fascinating challenge on Twitter. I mean, the bigger the bigger challenge is actually just to sort of not let yourself get, um, uh, you know, just a keyhole of... Well, you've got, to, you've got to develop a pretty, pretty robust sense of, you know, awareness that there are just huge numbers of people that really should be ignored. <laughs> that can take a while. Oh, but once you're there, you're all right. Adam Briggs also saw the benefit, particularly in 2020, of social media's ability to reach not just an audience but a community. You did a post on Are You OK Day or, and you said in the post for the for the black fellas who call it you rot or what day. Yeah. And it looks like suicide's going to be, you know, a bigger problem. It's already in a massive problem. It could, could become a much bigger problem as a result of COVID. Suicide affects the Indigenous community immensely. You know, we're way more susceptible to suicide rates and especially for young males is just like, you know, it's bonkers. I don't have them on hand, but I remember reading them. Too around, Yeah, I remember reading them around Are You OK? Just being like, there's a pandemic <laughs> worth talking mm. about. Often I, I do things like that for my black audience because often like black followers are overlooked. Like that's why I did like earlier on in the year I did those COVID flyers with um Yeah, I saw them. Yeah, with with Molly. Explaining what the what how to be safe with COVID. Yeah, yeah. Just to like just use like our protest chance into something that, you know, for for black followers to remind them to wash their hands. And just because often, like, number one, 
blackfellas don't trust the government in the first place and for good cause. <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and number two, often the messaging doesn't reach, you know, blackfellas. It doesn't speak to them. Mm. So I just wanted to do something that, you know, got the message across, really simple. Like I, I wasn't expecting to change the world or anything like that. It was just like, oh, here's an option. I put them up for download for everybody and I gave it to all the health orgs and stuff like that so they can have them, you know what I mean? And like just so they're there, you know, it's nothing. It just takes it takes like 10 minutes of work and uh, Molly Hunt done such an amazing job on the pictures and stuff. It was good. But what if you are Kitty Flanagan and don't use social media? I can't be trusted. I just would waste so much time. I'm already the worst procrastinator and if I had social media I would just procrastinate on it all day. When you say procrastinating you do spend time distracting yourself from what oh, you Oh, I'm the world's greatest like. time waster. Yeah. It's like, oh, I need to do that work. Do you know what else I need to do? Some online shopping. That feels like work because I'm sitting in front of a computer. Oh, look at me. I'm beavering away here, clicking, ordering. Yep, that is work what I've just done there. And then, you know, 3 days later, fuck, what did I just order? What has arrived at my <laughs> my front door? <laughs> <laughs> Another set of steak knives. Do I need that? So, yeah. Why do you think we do that? I don't know. I think a lot of it has to, I've discovered about myself that I can only work, um, which is really annoying and I wish I wasn't like this, but I feel like I can only work when there is an absolute deadline looming over my head. So I do tend to put things off and put things off and put things off and then, you know, with a day to go, I go, shit, now I've got to work until midnight to get this done and that's when I can do it. My sister describes it as someone has got to hold my head underwater till I can't breathe before I will actually get something done. So I just need that kind of pressure in order to produce whatever it is I'm producing. And you just accept that about yourself? Well, I used to get really annoyed about myself, but then I just, I didn't seem to be able to change. So I just went, oh, do you know what? You're just going to, you're going to go for a walk. You're going to distract yourself. And then two days before you'll get it done. And then you'll always think, oh, maybe it would have been better if I'd started three days earlier. Maybe it would have been better, but yeah. Despite the whole year nearly being cancelled, cancel culture was still alive and well in 2020. Analyzing and outraging over the work of people from decades past and deciding whether it has a place in today's world. As a comedian who sometimes pushes the boundaries, Ronnie Chang thinks it's all a bit overblown. Sometimes I, the woke police takes it too far with this stuff. If you said something 10 years ago and you can explain kind of the creative context and you just go, you know, maybe you even just, um, depending on what it is, depending on who you are, you just apologize for it and move on and, you know, it wouldn't be such a big deal. I think my, 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 my stance is like, you know, as a stand-up comedian, this is kind of right in my job scope of pushing the boundaries of what's socially acceptable to say. Well, it's a, jo- and, it's a job hazard now as well, cancel culture. Yeah, I, I guess. But you know what? I really believe that it's been overblown. I really think cancel culture, unless you've done something horrible in real life, I honestly feel like you can just say whatever and take the heat. You know, I think what happened is that there's a lot of, shall we say, uh, young white guys who couldn't take the heat or they are scared of the idea of taking the heat. And then that has led them to be like, you know, screw all these woke people. Trump is our hero. 
is literally mm-hmm. made them go all the way there. When actually, when you say cancel culture, what actually happens? You know, I've said controversial stuff, and then people get angry one day, and then in three days, nobody even cares anymore. So I, I think that there's been a little bit of, if you're going to say something controversial because that's your job, uh, just take it. Just take the hits, you know. I, learning to take the hits is something that I, I had to learn over the last two years. Just take the hits if you're going to push the boundaries, you know. The people arguing about it aren't the ones who matter. What matters is making new stuff. Right. Most of the people making noise for it are people who don't make anything. And the only way they can build a profile for themselves is to complain about this stuff. You know, I feel like it's a lot of people who are just kind of chasing clout a little bit. Um, mm. uh, because the best way to change culture isn't to, is to make new stuff that's better. You know, that people mm. can get behind. And I think that's happening. You know, there's a lot of new stuff coming out. So for me, the answer is always the future. You know, we're going back into the past way more than we should be. Look, I'm, I, this, is, this is my whole thing. I don't always get it right, um, even with my comedy, especially. Um, what do you mean by that? Right. So I think good comedians, for me, good comedy pushes the boundary. And you go right up to the line and sometimes you cross the line. And be, sometimes crossing the line is the point of whatever you're doing. I think we talk a lot in hypotheticals about comedy and creativity, about you can't do this, you can't do this. But until you see the idea, you don't know because what are you trying to say ultimately? You know, what are you trying to say with whatever idea you're trying to execute, whatever topic, whatever horrendous topic you're joking about, what are you trying to say with it? I feel like we talk too much in hypotheticals about it um, and we should look at the specifics, you know, instead of all these people who don't make anything trying to tell people what you can and can't joke about or what is appropriate. Let people make stuff and then we'll figure it out because you're, 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 you're going backwards with it as in you're looking at it backwards. You should make stuff and then we'll figure it out afterwards. And you don't always get it right. Like as a comedian, you, maybe you cross the line and you shouldn't have crossed that line. You know, you can't tell at the time, but you, you cross it. And then, yeah, you, you got to deal with it. Sometimes you cross the line and it, 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 sometimes you cross the line and it's great. Sometimes you mm. cross the line and it's terrible. You know, that's, that's the nature of great stand-up, I think. For the purpose of the, the the listener, let's just I just want to talk about the line for a second. Would an example of the line be the ISIS joke? Yeah, for sure. Just set out what that joke is for people. I was comparing ISIS to uh, the Japanese war crimes during World War Two uh, towards prisoners of war. I think that was I basically. <laughs> I think I said. You know, Japan did horrible things in World War II to uh, Southeast Asians. And now, you know, they made Pokemon and, and what, you know, Japan is like super friendly and, and Huge fun. economy. Yeah. And so I just say, if you, if you give ISIS a couple decades, you know, maybe they'll cure cancer. Um, yeah. Which is, <laughs> which is hilarious. Giving ISIS the benefit of the doubt is hilarious. Right. And I mean, what I was really trying to say with that whole thing was I was trying to, I guess, educate people on, on Japan in World War II, which I don't think is really covered in the West uh, that much. Um, and also something which I grew up with in Singapore, they always cover that. So I just thought it was an interesting point. Um, I thought it was a funny comparison. I thought it was edgy. I thought, it, you know, it, it, it pushed the line in the right way. I was very comfortable saying it. Um, if you kind of put that on paper theoretically, those topics are horrific. Like, why would you ever bring that up? But it's all in the execution, I think. So 
and that's my job, you know, that's my burden as a stand-up comedian. So I should get it right more often than not. So I'm mm. not, I'm not advocating kind of, uh, advocating of responsibility of whatever you say. Like that's on the audience. You guys don't get it. I'm trying mm-hmm. to be edgy. Like I'm not advocating that at all. I'm just saying that as a comic, that's how I, that's how I self-express, you know, is by when you tell me something horrible, the first thing I do is I think of a joke for it. I might not always express the joke outwards, but in my head, that's what I'm thinking. And yeah, sometimes you don't get it right. Sometimes it's more offensive than funny or no or not, but that's part of it. And sometimes it's right in the middle, you know, like it's funny and some people find it very offensive. And in those situations, you just got to be able to take the hits, you know, take the hits and not complain about it either. Like my, I'm talking about myself. Don't complain about mm-hmm. it. If you're going to play the game, take the hits and, and guess what? Most of the time in three days, people move on to something else. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this, this talking about cancel culture is really overblown. I think, you just kind of ignore it and it goes away because it really wasn't that important, you know, whatever people are trying to cancel you for. Now, obviously there's things which are, you know, actual crimes that you should be canceled for. And that's a different matter. Like Harvey Weinstein. Like Bill Cosby or whatever, you know, that stuff. Yeah, for sure. But I'm talking about like making a joke or, you know, Mm. whatever it is. Like I truly believe that the, the fear of cancel culture has been overblown. And, you know, if you, you, I'm my own barometer and I, I think I, I trust myself to be able to tell what is, what is uh, appropriate and what's not. And not people don't always agree with me and I'm willing to take the hits for it, you know? And that doesn't mean that I'm going to say whatever I want either. That's not, that, again, that's not what I'm advocating. I'm not saying I'm just going to say whatever the hell I want and deal with it. <laughs> I'm no. saying that I trust myself as a professional to say to get things it right more often than not. Yeah, to get it right more often than not. And um and it's an art form, it's not a science. You know, it's hard to say in 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 hypotheticals. Everyone wants these clear rules. Uh, the people who want the rules are the people who don't make anything. They want clear That's rules, right. don't say this, you can't say this. But if you make stuff, you know, it's an art, man. You gotta figure it out. And you brainstorm it and you pitch it and you try to work it out and you don't always get it right. And it's part of it, right? It's part of it, and part of it is is pushing the boundaries and then just take the heat. And taking heat is not going to make me hate progressive people. It's not going to make me a Trump supporter. Uh, it, it, it might make me uh, kind of anti-bloggers and not like the woke police. Um, but uh, I'm not going to become outright. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it for episode six of Brains Trust. On the next episode, the season finale, we'll try and wrap this weird old year up in a bow and see if 2020 has actually taught us anything. These things change our worldview on things when they are really long and deep. It's people who've lived through a war or lived through a depression and really have had to recalibrate society quite fundamentally. I'm not convinced that we will change our perspective that radically. That's when we next convene the Brains Trust.